In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Lord God, as we heard from your word, we live in the fullness of time. And we have received from you the fullness of what you are in the gift of your son. We pray that in meditating on your word and the preaching of your word tonight, Lord, that you would make him known to us, that we might see him and that we might become more like him. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as Jay mentioned, it's still Christmas, so Merry Christmas. Uh, Maybe emotionally and physically you feel like Christmas is over and you've moved on from that and are sort of looking forward to the new year, but we still have these days of Christmas before us and we had this preparatory season of Advent where we were making our hearts ready to receive Christ um, in two senses. One, in anticipation again for his coming again in glory, but also to put us in the position, put ourselves in the position of Israel and their own anticipation for the coming Savior, the coming Messiah and Jesus. And now in this Christmas season, he's here. And we have before us these verses in the Gospel of John. And I told Jay in the office just before we came over here, that my only consolation tonight in preaching these verses to you is that no preacher in the history of ever has ever been up to the task of preaching these verses because they are the depths. Um, th- these are the most profound, some of the most profound words that have ever been written. And the whole first four centuries and indeed all of Christian history has been really an unpacking and an unfolding of the depth of the meaning of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Uh, we are gathered here today because Christ became man. There is no church without the incarnation. That's why we exist. And that's what these verses are about. So we have in these verses a meditation on God coming into the world, taking on flesh. Um, And we talked about Mary. We talked about 
John the Baptist and all that sort of thing. And you can see the incarnation, the birth of Jesus is the beginning of Jesus or God's rescue operation. There's lots of themes of light and darkness in these verses. Jesus in the incarnation come, drops in behind enemy, enemy lines in order to save the creation that he made. That's what these verses tell us, that Jesus is the creator and that he came into his creation in order to save it. You can think of Mary almost as a kind of Trojan horse and that she smuggled in Jesus in behind the enemy lines um, in order to bring about new creation. So what we're gonna talk about tonight is just look at three things within this passage. We can't get to the depth of it, but three things that'll help us understand maybe a little bit more and help us answer this question why, why did the word become flesh? So verse 14, that profound verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Why did the word become flesh and why did he dwell among us? But before we can get to that question, we have to ask, what does this mean, the word? In Greek, it's that word logos. You've probably heard it before. And it's a word that has a lot of meaning packed into it. Um, it means the inward reality of things. It means the depth of wisdom of all things. It means simultaneously the word and action of God, that God doesn't just speak, but that his word accomplishes. So the word does, it's an action. We'll talk more about that later. It's a word that creates, it's a word that sustains. That gives us a hint of the depths of the meaning of the word logos. So why did this logos, the one who was with God, and the one who was God, why did he become flesh? Why did he dwell among us? First reason that the text gives us is the word became flesh in order to shine light in darkness. Look at verses four and five. In him was life, in the logos, in the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The first reason that the word became flesh is to shine light in darkness. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, is deeply familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he's very obviously echoing the very beginning of those Hebrew scriptures with these words in the beginning. That's how Genesis begins. So he's obviously drawing on these themes of creation, and what is that first act of creation? It's God speaking. His word, let there be light. The first act of creation, the first act of creation that sets up all the rest of creation is light shining into darkness. And that great theme that God's determination to not let darkness win is the whole point, right? That Jesus is the light that comes into the world and is the demonstration that God is determined to not let the darkness win. Let there be light was the first act of creation. The word becoming flesh is the first act of new creation. So we think of Jesus in terms of saving us, and that's true, but salvation is about a new creation. God speaking a new world into existence. And his word in Christ is his first remark or his first uh, action in bringing about that act of new creation. We can put it this way, that the one who made us is the one who will remake us. In fact, the, only the one who made us is the only one that can remake us. 
And why is this theme of darkness so prevalent? Well, later in the Gospel of John, John will say, as a condemnation of a certain group of people, that they loved the darkness more than the light. They loved the darkness more than the light. And here in verse 10, we have, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. There in that one sentence, you have the whole depth of the folly of human existence. God comes into the world and we act like we don't know him. We prefer darkness to light. And yet his steady determination is to shine light in the darkness as an act of creation and then as an act of new creation. On Christmas Eve, we had candlelight service in here and it's one of my favorite moments of the whole year when the lights go out and then we start passing the candlelight and you see the darkness steadily become less and less so and then we're singing together. That's a picture. It's a picture of us as the body of Christ being the light in the world that he first was the light of the world. So God, or the word becomes flesh to shine a light in the darkness to call us back to our original creation and to remake us in the way that we were first made. Second reason, second reason that the word becomes flesh is to give us life. Verse four again, in him was life and life was the light of men. John uses life and light interchangeably. Uh, we know from a scientific perspective that he's dead on, right? There is no life if there is no light. The sun makes everything work, right? If the sun didn't shine down and it didn't give the plants life, then we couldn't breathe and we wouldn't have things to eat. Life and light go together. They are intimately <coughs> related. In him was life. And not only in him is life, but in him is also new life. Look at verses 12 and 13. To all who received him he, and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born born, given life, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He came to give us life, new life, born anew of the will of God, born once as an act of creation, but born again as an act of new creation. The word became flesh in order to give us life. Throughout Advent, when Jay was preaching, he quoted from an Auden, a W.H. Auden poem for the time being. And there was a stanza in there that I want to draw our attention back to again because I think it sums it up nicely. Auden says, We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? We who must die demand a miracle. The word became flesh to give us life. Because we turn towards darkness, we need light. Because we choose death, Instead of life, we need life. And that is the miracle that we demand. He poses it as a question, how could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? But that is exactly the bold and scandalous and mind-boggling thing that Christians claim, is that the word became flesh. The eternal word, the logos, the internal logic of all things, the inward and deep wisdom, that which creates, that which sustains all things, became a first century Palestinian Jew who was a descendant of David through his mother, Mary, and who worked as a carpenter in basic obscurity for 30 years. That's the scandal and absurdity in certain ways of the Christian faith, that the infinite became a finite fact. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And it is these words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that is the miracle that we need and the miracle that we demand. And it is in these words that God crosses the impossible distance that existed between him and us by becoming one of us. It is precisely the miracle that we need. So the word became flesh to shine light in darkness. The word became flesh to bring us new life. And finally, the word became flesh in order to show us God. Verse 14, once again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's shown us what God is like. In the book of Exodus, at a critical moment in the story of Israel, after they have rebelled and Moses doesn't know quite what to do, he asks God a question. He says, I want to see your glory. I want to see you. And God says, you can't see me, but I will pass before you and you can see me passing you. That's what verse 18 is getting at. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word becoming flesh has made him known. He is the fulfillment of what Moses desired, to see the glory of God. And this is what St. Paul picks up on in the book of 2 Corinthians. He talks about Moses. He talks about Moses going up the mountain. He talks about Moses seeing the backside of the glory of God and his face being radiant with it. And his face being so radiant with just the glimmer of the backside of the glory of God that the people demanded he cover his face. But then Paul says, but we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. We're not like Moses. We've seen something better. We've seen something truer. The word became flesh to show us God. So that's why John says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a succession. That's what Paul was talking about in our reading from Galatians. There was a time for the law, but now we're in the fullness of time. We've moved past that. So the word becomes flesh to show us God, and he is fully God. He is the one who is at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom. But he is also fully human, fully God, fully human. You'll see it on the front of your bulletin. You'll see it on our website. You'll hear us say it. You were made to be fully human. What does that mean? It's a, it's a way simply of saying you were made to look like Jesus because he's the fully human one. We with unveiled face behold his glory and are transformed by one degree of glory to the next. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. To look at Jesus is to become like Jesus is to become fully human. The New Testament describes Jesus as the second Adam or the last Adam. He's the new humanity. He's God's act of new creation. That theme again of new creation, something new that God is doing. He's the second Adam. He's the new humanity. The early church father, Athanasius, picks up on this in his book on the incarnation. And he describes this image. He says, imagine that there's a portrait, a beautiful portrait of someone. And you can look at that portrait, you can see that they're kingly, and you can see that they're beautiful, and you can see that they have power and glory and dignity. But somebody comes in and they vandalize the portrait. They slash it to bits. The artist is called back again to restore the painting, but the painting cannot be restored. You can tell 
still, that it was beautiful. You can tell still that it had value, but the, there's only one way that you're gonna get that portrait back. And Athanasius says, the only way that you're gonna get that portrait back is if the model comes and sits for the portrait again, and then it can be repainted. And he says, that's what the incarnation is, that the model for humanity and what humanity was meant to be in Adam, but failed, comes to us again in the form of Christ, in the form of the word made flesh. And the New Testament says this in other words, that he is the exact imprint of the divine nature. He is the icon or the image of the living God. He's the image of God, just as we were meant to be the image of God. He is the fully human one, fully God, fully human. Athanasius is a great hero. You may not know that, but we're about to say the Nicene Creed after I'm done jabbering. We'll say the Nicene Creed. And I want you to look at some of the language from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. That's from the Gospel of John. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. There was a knockdown, drag out fight to get that language right. And Athanasius was at the center of it. And he held his ground when basically there's a famous phrase, it's Athanasius against the world. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. It's a pretty nerdy uh, theology phrase. But it is a phrase, and people do say it. Athanasius against the world. You say it, right? No, he doesn't. Um, <coughs> he was the only one left. In many ways, he was the only one left that was fighting for what these words really meant. And people were sort of going another way. And that creed encapsulates sort of the least worst way of saying what is so profound about this text that Jesus is in fact God, that the word is in fact God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now all the implications of the Trinity and the incarnation and the two natures of Christ all unfolds from what John put in this beautiful and simple prologue, deceptively simple, simple language, simple words, but profound meaning. Athanasius is a hero because he understood this. He understood what was at stake in the incarnation. He understood that the whole Christian faith rose and fell with the incarnation because what he insists in his book on the incarnation is that whatever part of our humanity Jesus doesn't take on, he can't save. So he has to take it on in order to save it. So that means he has to be human in every way. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He was in every way like us, except without sin. And that is so important and so decisive for us. The incarnation is everything. Why did the word become flesh? The word became flesh to shine a light in the darkness. The word became flesh to give us life instead of death. The word became flesh in order to show us the glory of God. And within all of that is another answer to the question. Why did the word become flesh? The word became flesh in order to die because that's what it takes to bring us back to God. The word becomes flesh in order to die. Flesh is vulnerable. Flesh hungers, it cries, it shivers, it needs, it wants. Flesh betrays us, it grows old. And more than all of that, flesh dies. The word became flesh and dwelt among us to show us the glory of God. And the paradox of the gospel of John is that John insists that the moment of Christ's greatest glory is that when he was lifted up on the cross. 
that that was in his enthronement, that that was when he was most glorified. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He who was light stepped into utter darkness on the cross. He who was life plunged into the depths of death and God forsakenness. And he who was utter glory became sin and shame. That's why the word became flesh. So that we might become children of God. That's what Paul understood. Reading from the Galatians. We are no longer slaves, but heirs. We are sons and daughters. J.I. Packer says that the greatest privilege, the highest privilege of the gospel is that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Karl Barth said in his commentary in the prologue that the logos takes the side of his adversaries. The word takes the side of his enemies. The word became flesh to die. So the question for us is, will we take his side? If he took the side of his adversaries, will we join him? Will we take his side? Let us pray. Lord, none of us are worthy of the depth of the mystery of the incarnation. And from the moment that you became flesh until now, until the moment you return, we will meditate on it, we will contemplate it, and we will never plumb the depths of it. But we do know, Lord, that you are determined to not let darkness win. You are determined not to let death reign. You were determined to save us. You were determined to make us sons and daughters. And for that, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.